I titled the message today, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. I was thinking of trying to be creative and coming up with something more catchy, but I thought, no, let's just keep it simple, stupid, make it very clear. And these three words are also the three points of the message. So clarity is the aim above creativity. Uh, It was said in preaching class that if the listeners, when the listeners start to think that the preacher is clever, they stop thinking that God is great. So it is not an objective to be particularly clever. Nevertheless, we will consider now point number one, marriage. Point number one, marriage. This is verses one through nine, where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians regarding this issue of marriage. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Remember, the book of well, both first and second Corinthians are occasional letters. They're written for a particular occasion. And that occasion is the Corinthians have written to Paul asking for help. They've sent him uh, letters with these problems and saying, what should we do about these various things that are happening in our church? And so he's writing back to them, responding with all of these different topics and these different matters. And so here, This theme continues of responding to the topics that they have written to him about. So verse 1 says, concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That line seems to be by all, um, well, not all, scholars look at this and they think this is probably a line from their letter that they wrote to him. Right, Paul? It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Isn't that right? We're in Corinth, and Corinth is a city full of sexual immorality, and that should not be happening. Right, Paul? And Paul's saying, yes, that is true. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Please notice, Paul is very, very, uh, very careful to ensure that his audience does not misunderstand what he is saying, in that... He's presenting both man and woman as equals here, equals before God and equals with each other. Let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a command, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, in context, remember what's going on. The Corinthians church has encountered some prominent teachers that have come into the church. These prominent teachers we will broadly call the super apostles. These super apostles are not ones that we know by name. They're not Paul or Peter or Apollos. They are different people. And they're ones who have come into the church and they're coming in saying, okay, you know Paul, you know Peter, you know Apollos, and you've heard of that guy Jesus, but I'm better than them. And we have better teaching than them. They teach you the way of holiness, but we teach you the the real way of super holiness. We'll teach you how to be a super Christian. 
And so these super apostles had infiltrated the church with false teaching of many kinds over a variety of different topics. Now, this teaching addressed here that we believe comes from these false teachers, these super apostles, was a legalistic or ascetic teaching regarding marriage. If you don't know the word ascetic, you need to know it. It is spelled A-S-C-E-T-I-C, ascetic. It's tied to the word asceticism. It's kind of like legalism, but you can look up that more later. The teaching addressed here is legalistic or ascetic teaching regarding marriage. You can have legalism or asceticism over all sorts of things. You can have it regarding marriage. You can have it concerning food or concerning clothing or concerning um, music or associations or all sorts of things. There are countless ways to be legalistic or ascetic, but this is regarding marriage. And this ascetic or legalistic teaching looked like this. Men and women should not have sex at all, no matter what. And marriage is not an exception to this rule. In other words, marriage is not the place for any hanky-panky. Marriage is not the place for any touching. You need to have separate rooms, separate bedrooms. You should not be engaging in any sex, even after marriage, because it is unclean. It is unholy, and you need to be holy and pure like us, the super apostles. These super apostles taught that truly holy people would refrain from having sex, including within marriage. So this is why Paul in verse 1 says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, because they're writing to him saying, hey, these people are telling us that, that it, we should not touch. And they're saying that we need to divorce our marriages because we just can't keep our hands off each other in marriage. And Paul's saying, let's, let's slow down here. Let's get this straightened out. These people taught that singleness was so much more holy and that celibacy was so much better that they encouraged truly holy people, the super holy people, to divorce their spouses so that they can live the most supremely holy life, which is the single person. Why? Why did, where, did, where did they come up with this? Well, they came up with this from their ascetic Gnostic dualism. What is Gnostic dualism? Well, it's the merging of two ideas, Gnosticism and dualism. I'm so glad that you asked. Gnostic comes from the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnosticism is a special knowledge or secret knowledge. That's the name of the game for the super apostles. They're the ones coming in and saying, oh, well, yeah, you know you've got like the Bible and all, and you've got Jesus and the apostles, but we have the secret knowledge. We have the secrets of the universe. We got them down the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Essenes. We got them from the special Gnostic teachers coming out of Egypt. So Gnosis is knowledge, and Gnosticism is secret knowledge, and dualism is this idea. You might have seen an image from... Asia of a black and white uh, circle that looks, I don't know what it looks like, but it's a yin-yang symbol. You've got flesh and spirit. You've got white and black, dark and, and light, good and evil. So this dualism has flesh versus spirit. Flesh is bad and spirit is good. 
Gnostic dualism teaches that material things are bad. It teaches that ideas are good. And so you have these ascetic Gnostic cults that had been hiding out in the caves in southern Judea, down into Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula. There's groups called the Essenes. The Essenes were a Gnostic dualistic cult. And so their religion was all about the denial of self. So that's why they live in the middle of nowhere, in desert caves where life is horrible. They don't enjoy anything nice like shade or trees or rain. And the water that they would get would come from, well, the occasional rainstorm and then these wells that they would dig and they would build up these cisterns to hold the water. But, but beyond that, you've got the Dead Sea that's within eyesight, but you can't drink that. And so the Essenes are living really, frankly, a horrible life. And they have this special secret mystical knowledge where they can commune with the gods and commune with these spirits to teach them the way of true holiness, which is this ascetic way. Material things are bad. Poverty is good. Ideas are good. Pleasure is bad. Denial of pleasure is good. So that's the source of this ascetic Gnostic teaching that the super apostles have been, they've been collecting these like beads or shells. They're collecting all these random teachings and then they're implementing them into the Corinthian church. And these new believers in Corinth are like, oh, wow, I've never heard that before. That's very interesting. Tell me more. Oh, I should divorce my husband because it's not good to have sex. Okay, well, all right, honey, I guess we're going to split this marriage up. And Paul says no. So this is the context. This is the the false teaching that has been uh, pushed by the super apostles upon the Corinthian believers. But what is the true teaching? What is the right teaching? Well, marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman and is designed for their good, for the continuation of the human race through bearing children, for pleasure, for companionship, and for the glory of God. This is not a product of the fall, but it is a part of God's good design for the world. If you have any questions on that, look back in the beginning of the book in Genesis and you will see God's good design with Adam and Eve in the garden. Sex within marriage is not a necessary evil, but in fact is a necessary good. There's a false Catholic idea that actually goes back Not further than Corinth, but it goes back much further than us, and it's forward from Corinth. And I believe that Augustine is the father of this ascetic idea that sex is bad. Where did he get that idea from? That's where we get the concept of the the celibacy and the priesthood. That, That traces its origin back to Augustine. Now, if you're listening to a lot of sermons online that are sort of what we would call kind of street level theology, they praise Augustine, Augustine, saying, yeah, he's a great guy. Both Reformed people love him and Catholics love him. Reformed people love him because he, they view him as the source of their soteriology the source of their doctrine of salvation. Sin and salvation is Augustinian because Augustinianism is Pauline. But on the other hand, Roman Catholics trace their ecclesiology back to Augustine. The way of doing church. 
So both the Catholics view him as the father of their church and the Protestants view Augustine as the father of their church because he had this mixed bag of ideas. And one of his ideas was sex is bad, therefore you should not be married. And if you are married, it's a necessary evil in order to reproduce. Where did Augustine get this idea from? Well, for him, it's rooted in a reaction against his pre-Christian background. His pre-Christian background is very much pagan, and it is filled with sexual immorality. So he comes out of that and says, okay, well, that's bad, so sex is bad, therefore you shouldn't do this at all. But if you must, then okay, but it's still bad. This idea in Augustine is rooted ideologically in his Platonic idealism which is also the root of his theological system, Augustine's theology and his hermeneutic. His method of interpreting scripture is rooted in a platonic idealism, which is kind of similar to this Gnostic dualism, where the material things are bad and the immaterial things are good. Flesh is bad, spirit is good. Spirituality, ideas, thoughts, those are good things. Those are right things. Those are pure things. Now, we know that actually all of those things can be bad. Thoughts can be bad. There can be evil spirits. Ideas can be very bad. But he taught, you know, these spirituality, ideas, thoughts, those things are the good things. And the the realism, the physical, tangible, that's, well, that's inferior. That's less. But we would say, no, the physical things can be good too. So this twisted idea about marriage became popularized. And for a thousand years from Augustine to Luther, it was the dominant view of the authority figures. Now, it didn't actually change their behavior. Their behavior continued on as pagans behind closed doors. But their teaching said, hey, sex is bad. Don't do it. Don't get married. Don't anything. But if you read the history of the medieval popes, you'll realize that it was far more perverse than anything we read or hear about today. So what is the true teaching? The true right biblical teaching is that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman and is designed for their good for the continuation of the human race through bearing children, for pleasure, for companionship, and for the glory of God. It is not a product of the fall, but it is part of God's good design for the world. This brings us then into point two. I need to watch the clock. Point two says, this is on the topic of divorce. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, A wife is not to depart from her husband, and even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, then she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Listen to this. Divorce is never an option because God would never divorce his people. 
And marriage is a picture of the gospel. And since you can't lose your salvation, the marriage covenant is also unbreakable. Right? Nobody said right. Because it's wrong. What I just read to you is wrong. The reason what I read to you is wrong is because I just read something else to you right before that, which was called the Bible. First off, God did divorce his people. Jeremiah 3.8, I sent her away with a certificate of divorce. Before we get into that, let's consider these words here. Verse 10 Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. What does that mean? Verse 12 says, to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Is this Paul giving a uh, sanctified opinion? Because we see that later on in this chapter where he's saying, now like, this is a concession, not a command, it's a word of advice. Is this that? No, it's not. What he's getting at is, verses 10 and 11, he is quoting Jesus Because Jesus said in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18, those are the passages where Jesus says the things taught in verses 10 and 11. So he's quoting Jesus in verse 10 and 11. But verse 12, he's saying to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. What does that mean? Well, that means he's saying, guys, I, the Apostle Paul, am giving you a word of instruction that has apostolic authority. It is from God, but it is not a quote from Jesus. Jesus did not give us this quote. Jesus did not address this issue. When we speak it, by the way, when, uh, an aside, when we speak in terms of sufficiency of scripture, we're not saying that scripture addresses every single possible scenario that could be made up. It doesn't. If it did, the Bible would be taller or thicker than those law books that you see on the memes. We're like turning over page one and page 18,000 is down here and you continue reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. This is not like those, um, those, those Torah commentary books that you see at the Wailing Wall where um, there's just countless books there because these are all commentaries and ideas and suggestions about the possible interpretations of various events. That's not the way the Bible works. It's not designed to give us an encyclopedia of every possible scenario. But what is happening is Paul is giving his inspired word from the Holy Spirit to the Corinthian Christians to address a specific situation in the Corinthian church. Now, what is that situation? It's a situation we addressed at the beginning. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So you imagine you're in Corinth. You're in Corinth. It's a pagan town. This guy named Paul comes through. He preaches the gospel. You believe. You become a Christian. You convert. And then you're trying to share the gospel with your spouse. But then the super apostles come and are like, hey, y'all should just break this up and split and go your separate ways. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Not so fast. If a woman has a husband who does not believe, if, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. We want to preserve these families as much as possible. We want to keep these families intact as much as possible. 
the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. I don't have the stats for you, but there are stats and research based on the order of conversion. And if a father converts to Christianity, the likelihood that the rest of the family will come and to become Christians as well. And vice versa with um, children getting saved first or the mom getting saved first. These things happen. It happens sometimes. So don't just throw in the towel, like, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian now, so let me get out of this. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Verse 15 says, but if an unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? This instruction contained here in 1 Corinthians 7 is not designed to be an exhaustive encyclopedia book on the topic of divorce. But the Bible does contain other passages that also address this issue. Deuteronomy 24 is one. It's sort of the original text on this. Verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if a later husband dies but took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is the primary text on divorce in the Old Testament. Yes, it gives a few specific admonitions, a few specific instructions, but verses, well, well, verse 1 is is rather broad and general. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hands, and sends her out, and then she marries someone else, and they do that. He's not dealing with any details here whatsoever. None. So this created quite a controversy among the Jewish people. This controversy should be listed right here in my notes, but it's not. It's on the next page. Was debated by these two schools of thought, which were the Hillel school and the Shammai school. So imagine with me Reformed people and Arminian people, or Republicans and Democrats, or Baptists and Presbyterians or whatever. You've got two different schools of thought and sets of opinions about ways of doing things. And so you have the Shammai school has one set of views and the Hillel school has another set of views. And this is the controversy which is brought before Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 19, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Or in the New King James, it says, for just any reason. 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason shall a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no man separate. Then they said to him, Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man who, with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept it, let him accept it. So these Pharisees come to Jesus with this trap, these word games, as they usually do. And they're coming with this background of the Shammai school and the Hillel school to ask him about the any clause. Can a man divorce his wife for any old reason? I don't like you today. Or the famous example, you burnt the toast, you're out. The Shammai school said no. You can't divorce your wife because she cooked a bad meal. The Hillel school said, yeah, you can for any reason. That's what Jesus is addressing. He's saying you can't just throw your wife out on the street, make her and her children, your children, homeless because she's not a very good cook. Now, Matthew 19 is not the only passage in the Bible that addresses this question. 1 Corinthians 7 also addresses this question of divorce, which is why we read that. We also started in this text. Deuteronomy 24 has this wide open gate that the Hillel school and the Shammai school both are driving their buses through saying, you can divorce your wife for any reason or no reason whatsoever. And then the other school is saying, well, no, it needs to be something more legitimate than that. And then the Pharisees come to Jesus trying to get a word on this. And he responds and he says, well, actually, it needs to be for the sake of uh, sexual immorality. And then Paul says, actually, there's more to it than that. There's more teaching than just the words that Jesus said that are recorded in Matthew 19. This should not present a problem for us because we know in the book of John that it says if all of the words of Jesus were recorded, the the world could not contain the books that are written. Nevertheless, 1 Corinthians 7, written by the Apostle Paul, not by Jesus. So that's why he frames it the way he frames it, saying, I'm saying this, not the Lord. The Lord said the other things. Now here I'm saying this. But there is actually more teaching on this in the Bible, more than just these two or three passages. Exodus 21, 10 through 11 says, if he, if a man takes a wife, another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. Marriage rights referring to sex within marriage. And if he does not do these three things for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. This situation described in Exodus 21, 10 through 11 is what we would call case law. And this is an example of a slave wife who is not wife number one. She's wife number two because they often had multiple wives in this situation at this point in time. And it's addressing the issue of neglect. If a slave wife Well, a slave wife has rights, 
Wives have rights. Husbands have rights. They have rights in their marriage, and we call those vows. When you are married, you are making certain vows to each other. If a slave wife had the right to divorce her husband for neglect, then so did a free wife. If a second wife could do this, then a first could as well. Now, those who are from exceptionally dogmatic circles have probably heard sermons about this, where they will say things like that quote that I gave earlier about uh, there being no, uh, no grounds for divorce for any reason, no matter what, right? Well, that's wrong, and that's, it's unbiblical. It's flatly unbiblical. There are typically two biblical causes for or grounds for divorce that would be permitted by those who care about these things. So there's, there's the conservatives who take this seriously, and then among the conservatives, there's two or three views, and then there's the rest of Christianity who just says, who cares, whatever, you do you. I'm not talking about that group right here. We're not, not worried about that. That's not what we're addressing. We're over here on this side, whose popular teachers we've all heard before. And I'll just name a few so that you know what types of people I'm speaking about, and the ones I'm about to give, or about to say, have different views on this. So Think, for example, John MacArthur, John Piper, Joel Beakey, Vody Bauckham, um, anybody else that you would hear speaking at a major conference. So among those four or five that I just named, they have at least two different views. Now, on the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, there are typically, for those who allow for divorce and remarriage, which I believe is the biblical position, typically are two allowances, and those are sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever. But I think that this text in Exodus 21 makes it very clear that there's a little bit more to the story. And this, I believe, is an example of a proof text for the reason why I believe that abuse is grounds for divorce. Abuse, whether it be physical or verbal or otherwise, are extreme forms of neglect. When you make marriage vows, you're committing certain things. And if you break those vows, you are the one who has broken your marriage covenant. So let me ask a few questions. Is living a life where you're married, but you've got John Piper breathing down your neck, saying you're not allowed to divorce no matter what, you've got Vody Bauckham's voice in your ear saying you're not allowed to divorce no matter what, And that voice is echoing in your ear, causing you to literally long for death because death is the only allowance to get out of this hell on earth. But you can't gain death because, well, suicide is also sin, so you're not going to do that. Is that scenario better than having peace? Is life where every day is hell on earth better than walking away and having peace in body, mind, and soul? Is it more godly to endure rather than to escape the endless cycles of abuse, followed by denial? And then the abuser reverses the role of victim and offender, claiming that they're actually the ones being mistreated. Is it better to live in an atmosphere of such conflict where your mental sanity is continuously torn apart until your brain suffers a type of damage that it results in chronic, visible, physical responses? 
where your brain experiences the level of trauma that you have a mental breakdown. Is that better? Whereas Piper says, the wife should just endure being slapped around by her husband. Is that better? Is it better for your children to live in a, quote, unbroken home where they watch the continuous warfare of a battle for power and for headship in the home? Is that better than having peace? Is it better for your children to hide under the bed when their violent, drunk, and angry parent comes home in a perpetual attitude, not just fit of rage, but an attitude of rage, because it's not an occasional thing, it's the norm. And that parent coming home in this rage, looking for someone to take their anger out on, and so the children are hiding under the bed. Is that better than having peace? Because, oh, God wouldn't divorce his people. Is this type of marriage that I've described to you a picture of the gospel? And is this picture a picture of the gospel that perseverance in the faith so beautifully pictures? God would never give up on his people, so we can never give up on this. So we need to continue in this bloodbath. No. No, God gives a way of escape, and it is described in these passages that I've read for you this morning. You see, God is a God of mercy. God is rich in mercy. God's heart is a heart full of compassion. God is not cruel, and his heart towards his children is one of tenderness, not scornful contempt. Now, I will admit to you that before I was a Christian, I viewed God, and yes, I was saved at a very early age, but nevertheless, I remember thinking these very clear thoughts as a small child, that I viewed God not as a God who was rich in mercy, but as one who was full of sarcastic contempt. I viewed God as a cosmic killjoy. He looked upon his people as objects to beat up. Not because I saw it in my home, no, my parents were not were violent with each other, but just my own mind's eye, my view of God was that if you prayed for a thing, God would give you the opposite of it because God just wants you to have a bad time. I even once said this out loud. I think a lot of thoughts that never make it out of my mouth, but I once said this out loud at my then best friend's house when his, I was like eight, and his mom said something about Oh, when I was pregnant, I prayed that the Lord would give me a good boy. He would give me a good son. And I said, oh, so that's why Casey is the way he is. I don't think she knew what I meant by what I was saying. But I did think this way. I thought that God was not a God rich in mercy, but actually if you asked for a thing, he would give you the opposite just to teach you a tough lesson and show you who's in charge. But I will tell you that the Bible says something else. It says that if you ask anything according to his will, he will give it to you. God has provided a way of escape when the marriage covenant has been broken. And the word in the Bible for that is divorce. There is such thing as a biblical divorce. Now, yes, there are lots of unbiblical divorces, and I'm not talking about that. Now, 
our text, chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, describe this uh, situation. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. How do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? That verse 16 there is, descri- or, uh, is interpreted in different ways. How do you know whether you will save your husband? How do you know? Well, you might, you might not. And you can read it very strongly from either way. Now, on this verse, Alistair Begg says the following things. Do you think that what he's saying is that it's better to hang in there? Because how do you know? You've got a great evangelistic opportunity. And I know your husband hates you. And I know he doesn't like coming to church. And I know everything else. But how do you know? You might say, or do you think what he's saying is just let him go? Because how do you know whether you will see them saved? To the situation as if marriage was designed for evangelism, it clearly wasn't. So don't don't stay married to that person, he says. Uh, Don't keep some unbeliever hanging around your house just so you can stick tracks under his porridge in the morning so that you can turn the Christian radio on as loud as you can so that you can stick Bible verses on his shaving butter. How do you know, he says, that you are going to save your husband or wife? That certain strain involved is not justified by the uncertain result. Beg goes on, he says, make your own decision. I'm not sure myself which way I ought to read this. I certainly know that there have been a number of people who've put themselves under a tremendous amount of guilt because someone has said that if Your husband or wife is an unbeliever. You mustn't let them go because how do you know whether you might be their means of salvation? I don't think that that is justified. So the key line that he says is the certain strain is not justified by the uncertain result. People who take the no divorce for any reason, no matter what view, in my opinion, they should not be pastors. In my opinion, they are clueless when it comes to pastoral care. Now, yeah, I've only been in ministry for nine years, but I grew up in a pastor's home, so all 32 years of my life, I have been seeing these things. I've been hearing people knock on the doors of my house when I was a child, and it's a battered wife who is asking for help, asking for food, asking for whatever, because her husband came home drunk yet again, beat her up. She put the kids in the car and drove to our place. I've seen this many times. I've spoken to many people who have stories like this. And sure, their story didn't dot the I's and cross the T's exactly the way 1 Corinthians 7 describes them or exactly the way Matthew 19 describes them. And they don't have proof of of, that he's cheating. They don't have proof of sexual morality, but they do have proof of him beating them. And some, so some pastors who I frankly believe are quite cruel will say, no, you have to go back. Or even worse, they'll say, you can separate from them, but you can't divorce them. So what that means is you have to be legally, contractually bound to them forever. Your credit score is their credit score. Your bank account is their bank account. Your college kids attempt to get in, or your students attempt to get into college is tied to them. And I'm sorry, it just is the way it is. And if you get slapped around, maybe you just can enjoy it as something that you need to bear. I think that that is horrible. I 
I've known women whose husbands were involved in drug trafficking. They were involved in gangs. They were doing all sorts of horrible things out on the West Coast, were extremely dangerous and violent and bringing all sorts of uh, murderers and terrible people into their home. And it was a very unsafe situation. And so this woman fled California, moved to New York, and then has pastors in her ear say, now you can't divorce him. You can't divorce him unless you can prove that he's cheating on you sexually. Well, how are you going to prove that? That's, that's a situation that you as a mom with three kids are not equipped to deal with. But what you do know is that he has broken the marriage covenant. He's violated those vows. So then these pastors will continue, okay, well, if he files for divorce, then you can say, let it be, because that's what it says in our text, right? So until he initiates the divorce, you can't, you're you're stuck. I would say no. He has broken the marriage covenant through his actions. You're just acknowledging what he's done legally by going ahead and signing and serving these papers. And if you're not thoroughly convinced, you're like, Andy, this seems like a bit of a stretch. Please look at the end of verse 15. Verse 15 says, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. In my New King James, it says, in such cases. Those words, in such cases, are this, it is this word of like, etc. He's saying, there are a lot of different scenarios in such cases. He's not saying, hey, this is the only possible potential scenario. But what does he do? Well, he gives the conclusion immediately after. What's the conclusion? God has called us to peace. God has called us to peace. This brings us then to our third point, remarriage. To put it simply, after a biblical divorce, the innocent party is free to remarry but may only marry a Christian. It is not sinful or less than to do so, but it is a freedom and a mercy that God has offered. My text for this is the verses I just read, verses 15 and 16. You can flip to the next slide. After a biblical divorce, the innocent party is free to remarry, but may only marry a Christian. It is not sinful or less than to do so, to avail yourself of this opportunity, but rather is a freedom and mercy that God has offered. So, what about the infinite number of pastoral questions or scenarios that could be raised? Because if you have a church with 100 people in it, you will have a church with 200 questions about, well, what about my Aunt Susie who went through this? And you're just like, I don't know this person. Well, in terms of application, point three is the points on the screen. The application is the, the, actually the fourth point, which I don't have a slide for. But the, the landing pad for this, the point is that you have to keep your marriage vows. And if you don't keep your marriage vows, you're the one who's broken the marriage covenant. And the other party is free to live a life of peace. The other party, the one who did not break the marriage vows, they are free to, to go on with their life and live a life of peace and remarry. Beyond this, if there is a divorce, there has to be a certificate of divorce. Not just tied to that person for forever. That's what our Deuteronomy text teaches. 
There has to be a certificate of divorce so that the innocent party can move on with their life. The concept of permanent separation actually falls short. Permanent separation that falls short of legal divorce does not have a moral high ground over this position. I've heard it from people who view themselves as more conservative and more godly and more holy and more whatever. That's actually not better. It's not more holy. It's not, it has no high ground over this permissive view, as some would call it. The permanent separation view is permissible, but divorce is not permissible. That view is actually a position of cruelty. So I would say again to you, contrary to the opinions of John Piper and Bodie Bauckham, who I do not hate, so don't take this as me hating them. I'm not just saying on this topic, there is such thing as biblical divorce. Now, further, you want to take it the next couple of steps further, which is where the followers of these ideas will go. So contrary to the culture created by that previous point, unbiblical divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If you spend any time around the church and you spend any time around these very conservative circles, you will learn through the air that you breathe that, well, an unbiblical divorce, well, that's the unpardonable sin. And I will tell you it's not. The unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? That's a great question. But it's not unbiblical divorce. Beyond this, your life is not over if you find yourself sitting in a puddle of tears and shattered dreams. Because let's be real. I'm sitting here preaching to a room with probably 55 people in it. And there certainly are people in this room who have been divorced in all sorts of different circumstances. And then there's a bunch of single people here who statistically, some of them will eventually end up divorced. If you find yourself sitting in a puddle of tears and shattered dreams, your life is not over and God has not abandoned you. Andy, how can you prove that? Well, look at the Lord's restoration of Peter for a deeply moving example of how God views his children who fall in the most heartbreaking way. Peter denied Jesus. To his face, he looked at him. He cursed and swore, saying, I I promise you I don't know that man. When he was confronted by a 12-year-old girl. And that was Jesus. And in the most compassionate and tender way, but yet very pointed, Jesus looks at Peter and says, feed my sheep. Now, These views, there are three, three labels. There are the permanence view, the semi-permanence view, and the permissive view. I think that these labels, permanence, semi-permanence, and permissive, are, are misnomers. I think they're bad labels. Well, yes, the first view gives no allowances for divorce no matter what the situation. And the last view believes that, yes, there are scenarios where it is not sinful for divorce. I believe a better label would be just to say, well, there's God's view, and then there's a view that lies about the nature of God and lies about the nature of the gospel. And you could say, Andy, that's harsh. And I would say, well, it's less harsh than what the poor victims of this view are going through. 
You see, the gospel, yes, marriage is a picture of the gospel, and these views actually reflect on the gospel, and so we need to consider that. The gospel presented by one particular view teaches that, yes, there is very real union with Christ in the gospel, and there is very real regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and there is very real presence of the love of God indwelling all of his people. And yes, that's the view I hold to. The other view is akin to the carnal Christian view, which asserts that the real presence of salvation is there, and yes, it is a covenant, but it is not coming with its accompanying fruit, namely love. So yeah, you're a Christian, but you don't love God, that's fine. No big deal. You still go to heaven. What I'm saying is, to say that you are in Christ, but you do not love Christ is to lie. Let the reader understand. So hanging on by the skin of your teeth in a torturous home where there is no love and there is abuse present and we can't divorce because God hates divorce, that presents a lie about marriage. The the lie is actually not about marriage. It's about the gospel. To say we must stay together no matter how bad because God would never divorce his people is false for the following reasons. Number one, God did divorce his people. Number two, it lies about the character of God and the nature of the gospel, the nature of salvation, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and a whole host of other things. I'll reread that. It lies about the character of God, the nature of the gospel, the nature of salvation, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, etc. A whole host of other things. It teaches that God is cruel, not a God of mercy. It teaches that God does not have compassion for his people, but would rather they be destroyed. I would rather you die than have a way of escape. That's a lie about the character of God. It teaches that God would rather his people be ground to powder than provide a way of deliverance. It teaches that God is not a God who actually redeems, but leaves you as you are. Now, In contrast to these things, a God-honoring marriage is a beautiful thing. A husband and wife who share in Christ together as equals before God with a God-fearing man as head and a Christ-honoring wife as a suitable helper with an equal yoking living in sweet harmony together is, in a real sense, heaven on earth. And the things I just described to you are not special. That's basic as the saying has been said around here, the bar is on the floor. The bar is, is very low in terms of dating, engagement, relationships. Oh, they have a pulse and they say they love Jesus. Okay, they ask me out, I'll say yes. No. No, the question is, is this an equal yoking? Is this man equipped to lead and is this woman going to be a suitable helper for him in that mission that God has given to them and if the answer is no and it probably is no then the answer is no why do I say the answer is probably no well because how many people do you date before you get married just statistically more than one or two So that means you need to be more careful and more cautious when entering into relationships, when going into marriages. If you know it's a no way, don't even say, yeah, I'll go out with you. And do not pressure each other to say yes more often if these are the situations. Do not get carried away with matchmaking or arranging things where you don't know anything about these people. 
A God-honoring marriage is a beautiful thing. A husband and wife who share in Christ together as equals before God with a a God-fearing man as head and a Christ-honoring wife as suitable helper with an equal yoking, living in sweet harmony together is in a real sense heaven on earth. The aroma of Christ is more present in a kitchen where Christ is in the heart of a housewife than all the cathedrals of Europe combined. Let me reread that. The aroma of Christ is more present in a kitchen, i.e. something so basic and simple, something mundane, not fancy, not unique. The day-to-day reality of loading the dishwasher and feeding some Cheerios to your kids. But where Christ is in that wife's heart, the aroma of Christ is more present than in all the cathedrals of Europe combined. The only clearer picture of the kingdom of God on earth than this sort of marriage is a biblically faithful Christ-honoring local church. Where these qualifications, where I've tried to qualify these statements, where these qualifications are lacking, the church and the home equally are more reminiscent of hell than heaven and is more visibly the abode of demons than angels. In other words, the home where Christ is absent is a place where devils dwell. The more holy the believing spouse becomes, the greater the gulf grows between the two and the more tension that rises in the home. I skipped an entire page of notes. Page six. And I have ten pages. So like three pages ago, I just skipped an entire thing. Oh, well. Let me read very quickly for you a paper that was written by Pat Abendroth that he and his elders put together, Marital Abandonment and Divorce from Pat Abendroth. Marriage is a God-ordained covenantal relationship and blessing. Marital divorce is therefore no small matter. The two allowances for divorce that are given by Jesus and the apostles fall under the categories of sexual immorality and abandonment. The practical matter of what exactly constitutes sexual immorality and abandonment has proven to be challenging. Here we will consider abandonment. When consulting those within the tradition of the Reformation, those for exceptional commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture, we find a fair amount of discussion regarding the intent and application of 1 Corinthians 7, 12-16, an abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. It is important for us to know that even some of the most conservative church leaders understood that desertion was not limited to physical departure. Theodore Beza said, he was a successor to John Calvin in Geneva, who was known for strict views regarding marriage and divorce. He did not want to veer from the allowance made by the New Testament, views that were even narrower than Scripture in this writer's opinion. Yet his writings reveal that he understood abandonment in a way that is not limited to physical departure. Accordingly, Beza states that to depart from someone and to drive the other away by threats or force are the same thing. Beza also says that he appears the deserter not only who positively refuses a mutual living together, but also demands intolerable conditions from the faithful spouse. See, that's the issue. Abusers don't leave. They have things the way they want them. They have their spouse under their thumb. And if they're a Christian abuser, then they can weaponize the Bible for their nefarious purposes, which is twice as evil as an unbeliever doing it. William Perkins said, a Puritan, 
He is an example of another prominent leader within the tradition of the Reformation who understood abandonment as something not limited to physically leaving. Perkins, like Beza, held certain views of divorce that are narrower than so many confessionally-minded Christians since his day. However, even with views we would consider narrower than the New Testament's, Perkins says, quote, malicious dealings, close quote, is a subcategory of abandonment. He states that like unto desertion is malicious and spiteful dealing of married folks one with another. Malicious dealings is when dwelling together they require of each other intolerable conditions. Here it may be demanded what a believer must do who is in certain and imminent danger, either of loss of life or breach of conscience, if they both abide together. In other words, threatening the other person. William Ames, another Puritan, followed in a similar spirit. He concludes that if one party drives away the other with great fierceness and cruelty, there is cause of desertion, and he is to be reputed as the deserter. So the one who's breaking the covenant, the one who is making the home hell on earth, that's the deserter. Even if they're saying, I'm staying in the house. This is my place. I'm not leaving. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority, and we believe Scripture teaches that there is allowance for divorce in the case of either sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbeliever. But before drawing hard and fast conclusions about the divine author's intent, it behooves us to do what, uh, to do what we do when considering another important and controversial matter. What we do is work with the text in context, and we do this with the church, i.e., without ignoring how the Spirit-controlled, serious-minded Christians understood the intentions of Scripture. At the very least, we would see that even some of the most careful believers in the early days of the Reformation concluded that abandonment was not limited to physical departure. Sadly, abusive relationships of different kinds have existed throughout human history, and the church has had to counsel its members through such hardships. To be aware of how the Bible has been understood and applied to such difficult situations is only wise. What we find some of what we find from some of our most respected forefathers in the faith is an understanding of abandonment that includes things like fierceness, malicious dealings, and cruelty. These have been considered acts that may constitute abandonment. The practice of Omaha Bible Church has been to allow for divorce in the case of either sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbeliever. Sometimes circumstances surrounding incidents of immorality have made determinations difficult. The elders have had to consider various facets while all along seeking to be faithful to the Lord and caring towards his people. Information gathering, prayer, and other factors are commonly utilized before counsel is given and action taken. It makes sense that the Lord gave overseers to the church to apply the unchanging word of God to the various situations faced by the church. The matter of abandonment seems to call for a similar kind of thoughtful shepherding. Whether or not a troubled marriage is one where there are biblical grounds for divorce due to abandonment may or may not be immediately clear, but church elders can prayerfully work with the husband and or wife in an effort to help him or her to act in a way that can honor the Lord Jesus. This is a conclusion of my notes. This is a conclusion of my sermon. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to keep this thought before you that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and you are the chief of sinners. You have violated his law. If you died, if you got hit by a truck on your way out of here, outside of Jesus, you would go to hell. And so you need to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Further, if you have divorce in your background and it is perhaps an unbiblical divorce, Jesus died to save sinners like that too. And he can wash all of your sins away 
And he doesn't hold those things against you. He doesn't bring them in the front of his mind every time you come before him in prayer. He doesn't look at you and see, oh, you're that guy who was really a loser when you were 22. He doesn't treat his children that way. But rather, he looks on you in Christ, through Christ. He looks on you as sinless as Jesus. And so he calls you to come to him, to come to him in prayer, to seek him, to trust in him. And so I hope that this message is not a word of discouragement or of beating people down, but actually a comfort and encouragement. And let's close with the word of prayer. Father, I thank you for giving us this passage and these many passages which we have looked at. Lord, I pray that you would teach your people and encourage them and strengthen them, that we would remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that you have washed all of our sins away and separated us from them as far as the east is from the west. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and apply them to our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.